Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Elliot Kleinberg, author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly Hurricane of 1928. They took all the white victims and they put them in a mass grave in the city cemetery in West Palm Beach, let families try to identify them, tag them, everything. But 674 black victims were literally dumped in a hole. We'll discuss the history of the military presence in Pensacola. We can actually trace the military origins, if you will, all the way back to the 16th century in 1559. And we'll talk about the long and sordid history of the Ku Klux Klan in the Sunshine State. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. powerful hurricane can be terrifying. The darkened skies, howling winds, and pelting rain can be harrowing. The hurricane of 1928 was particularly devastating to residents of South Florida and was the second deadliest storm to hit North America. Elliot Kleinberg is author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly Hurricane of 1928, now republished by the Florida Historical Society Press. Growing up in South Florida and having actually gone through some hurricanes as a child, uh, by the time I got to the Palm Beach Post in 1987, I thought I knew everything about every hurricane that had struck Florida. Of course, I was completely wrong. Uh, I naturally gravitated towards hurricanes, I believe, because uh, as a Florida native and somebody fascinated with Florida history and everything about Florida, uh, when you talk about Florida, you have to talk about hurricanes. And because they're such a profound event, and because as a journalist, uh, a hurricane is one of the most exciting news stories in the world because you have all that drama in advance that you don't get with an earthquake or a tornado. Of course, once the hurricane hits, it's not a fun story at all. Uh, when I got to the paper in 1987, uh, I was shocked to discover, and I hate to use the word shocked, but uh, I, I was surprised to discover that uh, I knew very little about this tremendous hurricane. Um, in 1988, for the 60th anniversary of the storm, uh, I was sent out to uh, Belle Glade to cover a commemorative event. And the more I talked to these people, I said, how is it possible that this profound hurricane happened and most of the world doesn't know anything about it? The 1928 hurricane played a pivotal role in Zora Neale Hurston's 1937 novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. 
The storm leads to tragedy for the novel's protagonist, Janie Crawford, while she and her lover, T-Cake, are living as migrant workers in the Everglades. People have no idea that the hurricane in Zora's book was a real hurricane. Now, it should be pointed out that she wasn't there during the hurricane, but she had lived in Belglade before the hurricane. She was in the islands when the hurricane struck. She came back to Florida later, talked to people who had gone through the hurricane. She takes some literary license with the hurricane. She gets it 200-mile-an-hour winds, and she uh, describes a gigantic tidal wave, which isn't exactly how it happened. It was more like a slow and steady rise, which nevertheless drowned everybody because there was nowhere for them to go. Uh, but certainly... Uh, in talking about the hurricane and its effect on the black people, the migrant workers in the glades, she was spot on. Today, meteorologists armed with satellite imagery track every movement of a hurricane for weeks before landfall, providing multiple models of possible paths a storm might take. In 1928, storm forecasting was not as sophisticated. As remarkable as it is to imagine now, back then hurricanes would travel through the ocean for days before anybody knew they existed. In the case of this storm, a ship in the Eastern Caribbean came across it, which is always a bad thing, and telegraphed about the storm, and that's the first time they knew about it. It then tore through the islands in just the most god-awful way, because the problem with those islands is they're small targets, so they don't get hit as much as a big place like Florida, but when they do get hit, they get clobbered, and there's no place to run. And this thing just tore up all these little islands in the Eastern Caribbean, and then it got to Puerto Rico. And I always say that if it stopped at Puerto Rico, everybody would be writing books about the great Puerto Rico hurricane of 1928 because it smashed the island from one end to the other, killed anywhere between 600 and probably 2,000 people. The night before the 1928 hurricane struck Florida, weather officials were saying that the storm was not going to hit the state. It made landfall near West Palm Beach on September 16th. Even if good information had been available, Elliot Kleinberg says it might not have made a difference. Well, first of all, to say that they knew that they knew or didn't hear the hurricane warnings presumes that they had a radio, which in 1928 a lot of people didn't. There certainly wasn't any television. Uh, the newspapers, and I'm a newspaper guy, but a newspaper is only as good as its deadline, which is 12 to 15 hours. But the other thing is, even if they knew, where could they go? Uh, if you were out there in those little towns along Lake Okeechobee, you had three options. One was to go west to Fort Myers, which at the time, Highway 27 and, and the roads extended to Fort Myers weren't even built yet, so you couldn't go that way. There's a tiny two-lane road along the east shore of Lake Okeechobee, which even today I've made that road. It's not an easy drive. And the only other way to go was towards the coast. Well, you certainly wouldn't go there. And all of that presumes that you had a car, which A, in 1928 wasn't a given, and B, if you were a poor black migrant worker, wasn't a given. So they really literally had nowhere to run. An estimated 2,500 Floridians were killed by the 1928 hurricane, and a disproportionate number of those people were African American. After the storm, white victims and black victims were treated very differently. For health reasons, all of the bodies had to be quickly placed into mass graves. In 1928, uh a black person was pretty much invisible. And these were black migrant workers from either the Deep South or the Caribbean. In a lot of cases, their boss didn't even know their last name. So there was nobody there to say, where's my son? Where's my father? Where's my brother? Uh, after the storm, they had to put these bodies into mass graves. And this was a health thing. This part was not disputable. But they took all the white victims and they put them in a, white, in a mass grave in the city cemetery in West Palm Beach, let families try to identify them, tag them, everything. But 674 black victims were literally dumped in a hole. I mean, they just dug a hole and they dumped them in. 
Uh, I've interviewed people that said, I think my family's down there. I don't know. Nobody gave me a chance to look for the body before they dumped them in. And then the other great tragedy is that for the next 60 years, this mass grave was unmarked. Now, can you imagine a place in Florida or anywhere in America where there are 700 bodies in a hole, and not just 700 bodies, but 700 victims of one of the most profound events in U.S. history that nobody ever heard of, and they've been in that hole for 60 years that nobody noticed. And at one point, they rerouted a road over so that part of it was over the mass grave. Now, I always say, if these have been 700 white people, or if this hurricane had smashed uh, downtown West Palm Beach and killed 3,000 white businessmen, or if it would have smashed a black tie affair out in Palm Beach, they'd still be talking about it. The unmarked mass grave of black storm victims is located at what is now the corner of Tamarind Avenue and 25th Street, about two miles northwest of downtown West Palm Beach. To add insult to injury, in the aftermath of the hurricane, black survivors were forced into unpaid labor to conduct cleanup efforts. Many blacks were conscripted, and that's a very nice word for meaning basically kidnapped, uh, and forced to help with the cleanup, weren't paid, weren't allowed to leave. Um, you know, I remember at one point, the, the first book, the first publisher of the book, uh, the editor called me up and said, uh, who made the decision to put the blacks in one grave and the whites in another? And I said, Phil, you must have been sleeping in history class. Florida was in the Deep South in 1928. I mean, some people find that hard to believe now. But that was a given, and it was a given that blacks were, that whites were allowed to conscript blacks to do whatever they wanted, and the blacks couldn't say anything about it. And so many blacks were forced to clean up and literally collect bodies, help put them in graves. And that brought us to the story of Coot Simpson, who's probably the most profound uh, person in my book, uh, because he didn't die directly of the hurricane. He was conscripted uh, to help clean up, and it, after three straight days— without his family knowing where he was, he said, listen, I got to get back to my family. And the National Guardsman uh, said, no, you're not. And he said, yes, I am. And the National Guardsman shot him in the back and killed him. Well, of course, uh, no jury, no grand jury, no coroner's inquest in 1928 was going to do anything to a white National Guardsman for shooting a black man in the back. So I say that Coot Simpson was, was a indirect victim of the hurricane, but he was also a direct victim of living in Florida in 1928. A statue depicting a family running from the storm commemorates the victims of the 1928 hurricane in Belle Glade, Florida. Still, the tragedy has been replaced in the national consciousness by other impactful storms such as the Labor Day hurricane of 1935 and more recently, Andrew and Katrina. Although the 1928 hurricane is often forgotten, Elliot Kleinberg says we should remember it because the storm still provides valuable lessons. It's understandable why people forget about this hurricane when the next one comes along. It's the old shiny object thing. Uh, and in the 1928 hurricane, as soon as everybody was, was talking about the 1928 hurricane, then all of a sudden we had the stock market crash, and then we had the Depression, and then we had the Labor Day storm, and then we had World War II. And after a while, you know, people were moving on to other things. Uh, but this was the second deadliest natural disaster of any kind in the history of the United States. And it staggers me that people have not heard of it. People in Palm Beach County have not heard of it. Uh, this killed, the only hurricane that ever killed more people than the 1928 hurricane was the great Galveston storm of 1900, which killed anywhere between 6,000 and 10,000 people. And, you know, I'll tip my hat. That's the, that's the champ. Uh, but this hurricane, the official death toll was 1,836. But even when they established it in 1929, they said, no, we know this is probably wrong. It's really probably close. The official death toll was changed on the 75th anniversary 
in 2003 to 2,500. Not as the result of any new research, but just an acknowledgement that the first number was too low. But then if you add all the people that were killed in Puerto Rico and other U.S. possessions, now you're talking about a hurricane that probably killed 4,000 or 5,000 U.S. citizens. And then if you add in the islands that in the Caribbean that were, they were still tracking this thing in, in Canada, it killed people in New Jersey. So if you add everything together, all the people that this hurricane killed, it probably killed 6,000 or 7,000 people. It killed more people than Katrina. Katrina, you know, people are already, when, when, Andrew, when Andrew was the big thing, and then Katrina replaced Andrew. But you know what? Andrew was a Category 5 hurricane, one of only three to strike North America in the 20th century, and, but it only killed 15 people. Katrina was a Category 1 hurricane, but it killed thousands. So, and then there's this hurricane that nobody's ever heard of, nobody can remember. And there are so many lessons from this storm that can be uh, current today. One, of course, being uh, the bad forecasts. Uh, and, and, and the forecasters now even talk about the fact that that is why we give such a general forecast. We're not going to do what they did back then with just say, oh, it's not going to hit Florida. Uh, the other thing is, is the great reminder that the biggest killer in a hurricane is not wind, it's water. So that's why you get a Category 5 hurricane like Andrew striking one of the major metropolitan parts of America and killing only 15 people. But you get this hurricane, what did it do? It drowned everybody. A freshwater lake jumping its banks in Florida. Who'd have guessed it? So that, and then the other story, of course, of the 1920 hurricane is the story that we understand right now, which is amnesia. Not long after the 20th hurricane, I'm sure people were getting back to their lives. And we had uh, Andrew, and after Andrew, we went a long stretch where there were no hurricanes. Everybody in Florida got cocky. Then we had 10,000 hurricanes in two years. And then we haven't had any in 10 years. And the hurricane people and the emergency managers in Florida right now are terrified because they know that people have short memories. And all of those are lessons that we can get from the 1928 hurricane. Elliot Kleinberg is author of the book Black Cloud, The Deadly 1928 Hurricane, now republished by the Florida Historical Society Press. Just sit in the dark, singing these hurricane blues. Just sit in the dark, singing these hurricane blues. Just sit in the dark, singing these hurricane This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and find out about upcoming events like the Florida Frontiers Festival and the Florida Historical Society Annual Meeting and Symposium. You can find great books on Florida history and culture and subscribe to our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org.
Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, the Pensacola Naval Air Station has been around for more than a century, and the military presence in the city goes back even farther than that, right? Well, that's right, Ben. We can actually trace the military origins, if you will, all the way back to the 16th century. In 1559, the Spanish conquistador, Don Tristan de Luna, first attempted a colony in what is now Pensacola. Unfortunately, the colony failed after only a few years, and it really wasn't until the late 17th century that the Spanish again reestablished a military presence along the Gulf Coast, specifically in Pensacola. And over the course of the next few centuries, up through the British period, Pensacola it really was a central, played a central role rather in terms of defending the Florida colony, at least Western Florida, along the Gulf Coast of the United States. But it wasn't until the 19th century, when Florida became a U.S. territory, that the U.S. government realized the strategic importance of Pensacola, and they built a military presence there. There were a series of forts built on the Barrier Islands, also on the mainland area around present-day Pensacola, because the harbor itself was a, a wonderful natural deep water port. Again, even going back to the 16th century. Mariners were familiar with this port, so there was a, a certain strategic importance, but it also had some wonderful natural features that allowed the U.S. government to utilize it for various shipbuilding and uh, naval training operations throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century. But it's actually in the 20th century, specifically in 1913, that the federal government realized the importance of developing a naval aviation unit. They understood the importance of the um, newly invented and, and rapidly advancing technology of the aeroplane and its uses in naval situations. So as early as 1913, the Department of War decided to allocate funds to establishing the training of uh, naval flight officers. And as early as 1914, the first class of what would become uh, the United States' first naval aviators came to Pensacola. So Pensacola is really the birthplace of naval aviation. NAS Pensacola was established shortly after that. And early on, before the First World War at least, we had less than 50 commissioned officers who were trained as naval aviators. And then leading up to the First World War in 1917, there were 38 aviators. By the end of the war in 1918, almost 500 pilots had gone through the program. But by 1941, by the Second World War, the technology had advanced substantially by that point, and the Navy really understood the importance of aviation and naval operations and aircraft carriers and, and so forth. Um, they were training over a thousand pilots a month beginning in, in 1941 through the Second World War. So it really was at that point, the Second World War, that they solidified the importance of the Naval Air Station in Pensacola. Now, the Library of Florida History has something like 15,000 historic postcards in the collection, including some that you've selected from Pensacola. Well, that's right, Ben. That's what we're looking at now are some historic postcards, some of which are actually original photographs. And I want to uh, direct your attention to one right here. This is actually a photo of one of the first aircrafts that was used. It was called an aerial scout. It was a Burgess airplane. Now, these are designs that were borrowed from other engineers who were working in Europe who had developed these biplanes, and they were attaching floats to them, essentially, and they were flying around Pensacola Bay. It was all very experimental, so oftentimes there were crashes. You know, people really didn't know what to expect and how they were going to be able to properly utilize this new technology. But here's a wonderful photo of one of these planes just lifting off from the bay. You can see two other airplanes are, are actually already in the air, 
And then there's actually a naval destroyer. So it's a little bit of everything that was going on in Pensacola at the time. And this is right around the beginning of the First World War, so 1915, 1916. We also have a wonderful colorized photograph of torpedo boats that were used in anti-submarine operations in Europe during the First World War. And you can see uh, here in the photograph, some of the sailors have their jackets that probably got wet or hanging in the breeze, uh, drying off on, on top of some of these torpedo launchers. And then if we move forward in time a little bit to just prior to the Second World War, this is a wonderful collection of vignettes of uh, naval training aircraft. And it says here, Pensacola, quote, the Annapolis of the air. And that's because a lot of naval cadets, graduates from the U.S. Naval Academy, went right to the Naval Air Station Pensacola to train to be naval aviators. And we have a few more wonderful aerial views of the entire site, going back to the very beginnings in 1905, 1906, and then up through the teens and, and just prior to World War One. Now, in addition to these great postcards, you also have some other photographs of the military in Pensacola. Yeah, this is what's great about the FHS collection, because we have these postcards, we have official photographs, but we also have these great photographs taken by just civilians, regular individuals who were involved in uh, the shipbuilding trade. Now, Pensacola was famous, even going back to the 1820s and 1830s, as being a site for the construction of U.S. naval vessels. And that was certainly a, a, a true throughout the 20th century. We have a great collection of photographs from one of the uh, shipbuilding workers, one of the shipwrights. Uh, these are water level views. You can see there are workers in uh, the foreground. You can see some of the just some of the day-to-day -day operations that, that most people probably wouldn't even think about. Here we have a, a ship, this is just prior to World War I, called the Escambia, one of the first two vessels actually launched by the ship, uh, Pensacola Shipbuilding Company, which brings me to another photograph. This is a great 8 by 10 black and white photograph of the first ship that was launched by the Pensacola Shipbuilding Company. This is in March of 1917. The ship is called the Kushnuk. It saw uh, some operations over in Europe, although by the time it was actually fit for sea duty, the, the war had already ended. But they, the U.S. government still utilized this cargo vessel, and it was scrapped in 1932. When we get to the Second World War, uh, the shipbuilding company again opened up operations or expanded operations, and they began building Liberty ships, the famous cargo ships that were used to transport men and material throughout the Pacific and Atlantic theaters. So uh, the, the Naval Air Station is certainly still very important for uh, the training of, of naval aviators and, and support ground crews, and, and it's expanded. It's become a, an enormous operation. But shipbuilding is also a big part of Pensacola's history going back to the 16th century. Fascinating as always. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. The Ku Klux Klan has had a long and sordid history in Florida. Robert Casanello is a professor in the public history program at the University of Central Florida. As Casanello reports, the KKK has staged public marches, infiltrated the government, and committed acts of domestic terrorism in Florida for more than a century. The uh, Ku Klux Klan, uh, the so-called reborn Klan of the 1920s, uh, actually came into being in 1915 uh, at the same time that D.W. Griffith uh, released his film Birth of a Nation. 
based on several racist novels uh, written much earlier in the century. And uh, a defrocked minister in Atlanta, Georgia, named William uh, Joseph Simmons, uh, who had been recruiting for various other fraternal organizations, uh, Woodmen of the World and the Elks and the Oddfellows and so forth, was uh, hit by this idea that he could revive the Klan primarily as a patriotic and fraternal order and, incidentally, make a financial killing. That was Michael Newton, author of The Invisible Empire, the Ku Klux Klan in Florida. I talked to him about the emergence of the new Klan in Florida after the 1910s. Here, he tells me the difference between the 19th and 20th century organizations that took the name of the Klan. The original uh, Ku Klux Klan of the Reconstruction era was basically a militant or paramilitary resistance movement against so-called radical reconstruction aligned with the Democratic Party of the South at that time, or as they called themselves, capital C conservatives. And uh, in their terms, it eventually redeemed the South for white home rule. The 20th century Klan uh, ended up going nationwide. Uh, it was affiliated with both political parties, uh, primarily Democrats in the South and Republicans in the North. Uh, it was, to a large extent, a fraternal organization. Pretty soon went into politics so that various individuals who wanted to run for office found in certain states with large Klan concentrations that it was to their benefit to join, and they included various governors, congressmen, U.S. senators, and allegedly at least a couple of uh, future presidents. Whereas the original Klan was primarily rural and made up of Confederate veterans, the modern Klan cut across all social lines and included what were then called the best people of the South, including many professional individuals, doctors, uh, politicians, lawyers, and hundreds of Protestant ministers. In the 1920s, the Klan was widespread and a national phenomenon. Although there was the public face of the Klan that is captured in parade photos in the 1920s and beyond, there was also the secret Klan that carried out violence and terror to intimidate civil rights activists, immigrants, and all kinds of people who disagreed with the Klan. Well, there was definitely a conflict between the Klan's oath of secrecy and the way it operated in real life, especially during the 1920s, when estimates of uh, the membership range anywhere from 2 million to 9 million, and most historians concede 4 or 5 million members nationwide. You weren't supposed to talk about your membership if you were a Klansman, but it was widely known uh, in many areas. And the publication of the literature was actually to some extent, a money-making scheme because Klansmen were also urged or ordered to subscribe to the various Klan newspapers and to purchase these little rule booklets along with their robes and uh, flags and various other paraphernalia. All of the money made its way back to the uh, state headquarters and then eventually a share went to Atlanta. Michael Newton tells me what distinguished the Klan in Florida in the 20th century to other Klan movements around the country. One thing that made the uh, Florida Klan stand apart from the revived Klan of the 1920s and uh, 30s was its longevity. Uh, it, uh, they grew a fairly large membership in a relatively short time, and when some of the other Klan states began to fade out in 1926-27, uh, and then even more so after the Democrats uh, nominated Catholic Al Smith for president in 1928, Florida actually maintained 
a larger or higher level of its membership than many of the surrounding states and hung on really into the 1940s and then enjoyed a pretty brisk revival uh, with quite a bit of violence in the early 1950s uh, when other states didn't really catch on with the new Klan until after 1954 or 55 with the uh, Supreme Court's Brown ruling on school segregation. That was Michael Newton. I interviewed him and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Find it on iTunes and YouTube. I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, you can visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund, the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, and by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.